Payments is an industry that has an incredibly wide moat. Throughout my career, I've, I've evolved with payments technology. The world of financial services are you know, changing quite quickly. I always knew I was going to start my own company. Welcome to InCheck with FinTech. Welcome to InCheck with FinTech. This week we have Crick Gunning, CEO and co-founder of digital identity specialist Fourthline, sharing his insights on his international upbringing and how that informed the way he built his team. He will talk about Fourthline's mission to build tech for good, discuss how COVID-19 triggered a surge in financial crime and how smarter fraudsters are evading detection. Fourthline has developed proprietary technology to help enterprises with fraud detection, user experience, security, data privacy, and compliance. Enjoy listening. So I'd like to start with uh, Crick, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I have to say thanks for having me because we're basically in your office in the heart of Amsterdam at the moment. Yeah, that's correct. We're very proud to be headquartered in Amsterdam and uh, a lovely office close to the Vondelpark, which is uh, one of the key reasons that people enjoy working here. I can imagine. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, so uh, let's kick things off with maybe a, a bit of an introduction on yourself, on the person Crick, who are you? Uh, my name is Crick, I'm the co-founder and CEO at Fortline. Um, I was born in uh, the US, but only lived there for six months, I can hardly claim to remember anything. Uh, then moved to England, then to Mel Belgium, and spent the majority of my childhood in, uh, in the Netherlands. Um, did high school in the Netherlands, then spent a gap year in Spain. Um, studied and then did internships first with the Boston Consulting Group and then with ABN AMRO in Beirut in Lebanon. Uh, that was an amazing internship, I can talk about that forever. Uh, but that was my segue into finance. So I started uh, thereafter um, on the investment banking side at ABN AMRO. Um, subsequently, after five years, um, uh, I co-founded an advisory boutique, partially focusing on M&A and partially on advising startups that were looking to raise capital. Uh, advised over 150 of them over a seven-year period and in the final two years so 2013-2014 you saw a lot of traction um, emerging in Europe uh, around fintech and based on my past experience in finance I decided I wanted to be part of it uh, and I joined a company called uh, SafeNet back in uh, 2015 um, and with SafeNet we built and launched a B2B deposit platform for which we need to be regulated and for which we needed very strong functionality around KYC and back then we looked at the market, evaluated all solutions and concluded that we thought we could do a better job ourselves so we decided to build uh, the system in-house um, and after launching the deposit platform in 2016 we were approached by a number of uh, parties in uh, in the year thereafter, so 2017, whether they could use um, KYC on a standalone basis and that's uh, what eventually evolved into, into Fortline. Right. All right. Okay. So when you did M&A advisory, then did you was it at the time that there were also a lot of fintechs that you advised or corporates that you advised around fintech technology, or was it something that you really got to know of through maybe your own research enthusiasm and then rolled into Safenet? So I think on uh, the ABN side, this was uh, the early days when fintech was uh, not yet a, a a term that was widely used. So I did advise a lot of. Uh, companies in the financial sector, so I, I knew that side of the business, and then subsequently through advising startups, I got to know the tech side better, 
and that should have led to me believing in sort of uh, taking an educated guess to to jump the wave of fintech. Exciting. All right. Okay. And then so let's talk a bit more about the Beirut Lebanon adventure that you had as an intern. You said I can't stop talking about. It. Well, let's not talk about it forever. But that's interesting. Was that totally different from what you've seen before, maybe in your previous internship or anything you saw after that? Yeah. So I think uh, it, it was my sort of first uh, hand experience with finance. I think that sort of uh, the best way to get to know a sector is to just be uh, be thrown in at the deep end of the pool and uh, and see whether you can survive. And I think the the fascinating thing there was um, the the local office of ABM was run completely by locals, so only Lebanese. Um, and ABM was of course a a bank headquartered in the Netherlands, and there was a uh, a great start for me there because. The people in the Lebanese office viewed me as the envoy of the headquarters and sort of rolled out the red carpet, uh, whereas I knew nothing about banking at all. So I think sort of the best way to to really get to know a sector and to understand sort of what is um, the problem that a, a company is trying to solve more broadly, uh, you need to, to, to get first-hand experience. And, and, and in Lebanon, there was a very uh, particular situation around um, uh, currencies and, and speci specifically of ex-hedging because people were importing cars in one currency and selling them in, in another. And I think what I learned there is really understanding where the pain is of a client will help you build and sell solutions that they love to use. And I think that's something I took away there, apart from sort of the international mindset that, that I got from very early, early on. Um, being born abroad, being partially raised abroad, uh, and uh, working abroad, you very quickly realize that diversity is not something uh, that you want to do because it's uh, sort of uh, unvoked to, to talk about it. It's something that actually um, makes a company thrive. And I think uh, if you look at what we uh, what we built at Fortline, um, pan-European from day one, uh, it's a team of 230 with 48 nationalities uh, with a 50-50 gender split. And I think I know from sort of my, my own youth and my own early career uh, why that is a really, really good thing for business. At Fourthline, we use tech for good. We build products that have a major and long-lasting impact on the online financial ecosystem. We leverage a highly automated KYC product with a core of machine learning technologies, making us the most reliable fraud detection platform for KYC. As a product lead, you will take responsibility for an entire product suite in one of our critical verticals. Interested? Reach out to Tom Brenkin. Email in the description below. I love that. That's very interesting. And now the fourth line is thriving. I mean, you were uh, listed as the LinkedIn top startup this year. And I think also as one of the top 250 scale-ups by Erasmus uh, Rotterdam University. Um, you your founding story is... Uh, at least from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, you come out of SafeNet. That was back in 2017, you said? Yeah, so we, we launched our um, standalone KYC product uh, uh, end of 2017, start of 2018. That started scaling very rapidly to the point where over the summer of 2019, we said scaling one company is hard enough, scaling two companies um, with very different products under one brand is not going to work. So we spun out the KYC activities, rebranded, uh, those to fourth line um, so the the brand has been around for for two years uh, the company and the product has been around for close to four years um, and I think sort of the the guiding principle for us has been how can you leverage technology to fight financial crime and that is our mission and it drives everything we uh, build and everything we scale uh, is linked to that overarching theme 
Okay. Yeah. Was it a conscious decision to just make it stand along with its own name? So two years, you said four years ago, or the, the product itself is four years old, the name itself two years old, so there was kind of a two-year gap. Was it a conscious decision, and what made you make that decision to say, okay, let's go uh, and rebrand it under fourth line? Yeah, so it was in, in practice, it was about a year and a half, and the conscious decision was plain and simple. It was growing like crazy, uh, but really like crazy. So this is sort of uh, the good thing about getting back to what I said before about really solving a, a pain for your customers. If then sort of the, the product takes off from day one and starts growing so rapidly that you realize that you need to dedicate all of your energy and attention to making sure you uh, can grow in a controlled way, that was the natural um, decision point to, to split the two companies and make sure that we could uh, fully focus on, on scaling this further. Is that your, your, your key success factor, uh, really understanding the pain of the customer? and building products around that? Has that been your kind of, how do you say that, um, um, magic formula for success? Well, I think sort of, uh, potentially more important than that is not sort of recognizing the pain of your customers, but experiencing it firsthand. So the reason um, we're different, and I think the reason we're successful is because we built this as a financial institution for in-house purposes. And that means that we took a view very early on what is the actual problem that we need to solve? Which is, if you're a regulated financial institution, um, it's essentially three things. So one is how can you um, avoid the downside risk of non-compliance with regulations, particularly with uh, anti-money laundering regulations and with privacy regulations. So in Europe, that's a fifth ML directive and GDPR. The second problem is, okay, in this mobile first era, how can you offer a um, product that for the end client uh, offers great conversion and great UX. And the third problem, and, and, and that is a problem that is ignored by a lot of the other solutions out there, is how can you avoid building a digital front end that may be good for the end customer, but is merely a facade where in the back office you still have massive teams running manual checks, which is what we see happening with a lot of institutions even here in the Netherlands. And we took a view very early on, is the only way you can really leverage technology in this fight against financial crime is by looking at the proce process holistically and automate the entire end-to-end -end process uh, that a financial institution faces. And that means you also need to have solutions in place for risk scoring, for um, sanction list screening, for proof of address, for uh, investigations, for fraud, for QA. Um, and that means that overall, for every client that we check, we've run over 210 checks. And driving that end-to-end -end automation has been the real success factor because once we've proven that we could do it for in-house purposes, other uh, banks wanted to use that as well. Because it means for banks that they can cut costs when it comes to personnel? I think that the driving decision is quality. So I think the reason that um, banks like the fact that we approach this in a very data-driven manner with sort of this end-to-end -end automation uh, in mind is first and foremost about quality and because of the fact that we can sort of um, uh, show that every check that we've automated led to a higher quality level, that's the, the, the first decision point. That subsequently you can also then offer like 95% cost reduction to compare to what they have today is, is phenomenal and it helps in the sales process but quality is leading in everything we do. Mm -hmm. All right. can, can you talk a bit more maybe about the solution itself how i mean it's a kyc solution can you talk maybe a bit more about what makes it so special yeah, so i think the uh, what we're building uh is a, as a core product is a bank bed kyc 
uh, solution. Um, but the bigger vision we're executing is how can you tackle identity in highly regulated institutions, which is a challenge on day zero. So the, the, the moment you want to, to open an account with a bank or a fintech or a neo broker, and uh, they need to know who you are, essentially what they're trying to address is two questions. One is, can I accept this person as a customer, which is very much a compliance-driven question. And the second question is, do I want to accept this person as a customer, which is very much a risk question. And uh, for that, we've built a, a cloud-native microservice architecture um, platform, all with in-house technology. And that means that we have uh, also have a, a large AI team um, that has built phenomenal technology, uh, both around uh, biometric verification, where there's a lot of debate right now um, around sort of the dependence on, on big tech for those types of solu solutions, but we've all built that in-house. So we control that technology. Uh, if anyone is afraid there's bias in a model, we can actually tweak the models and make sure that we eliminate bias. Um, we also have built specific AI models um, uh, based on technology that's called OCR, so it's extracting text from ID documents. Um, and there we've built uh, our proprietary models, benchmarked that against Google Vision, which is like the holy grail in OCR. And we outperform Google Vision. And I think, um, yeah, in, in, in certain respects, we're sort of a B2B2C company and therefore not in, in, um, in the forefront. But I think the technology that we've built is very much in the forefront of what's happening uh, in, the, in this space in Europe. It is massive, the fact that you outperform Google Vision. Why is that? What is at the core of that? Why do you think your solution is doing so well compared to a giant such as Google who builds a product which has similar capabilities, capabilities from what I understand? Yeah, so I think our view very early on has been let's define where we have uh, a great product market fit. And as mentioned before, for us that's focusing on clients who are willing to pay for a quality bank-grade KYC solution, which uh, means that we work for um, neo-brokers like Flatex, DeGiro, uh, Trade Republic, for fast-scaling fintechs like N26, Vivid Money, um, for banking and service providers like, for example, Solaris Bank, who was also on your show previously, as well as for a bunch of highly reputable uh, traditional financial institutions. Um, and by taking that deliberate view, it also means you can focus. And means we have built a product that is really tailored to the, the pains those players feel. And it means you can also um, build and train AI models for a very specific use case, in this case, extracting text from ID documents. And that focus has allowed us to really drive results and quality for the specific use case our clients face. That's great. Can you maybe take me through, so if you, uh, do ID checks. Is there different ways of looking at a passport to check or to verify if it's the person that they say they are? Is it you, you, you talk about text, for example? I think there's a barcode on the passport itself. What are the different ways you can verify whether or not the person is the person they're saying they are? Yeah, so I think for us, in if we start on sort of a very high level, it's making a link between a real live person that's present at the time of sign up. Um, a genuine, authentic, government-issued ID document, mm -hmm. um, a smartphone that is being used for the sign-up process, and what we broadly call the whereabouts of a client. Um, and there's different ways of both detecting fraud and confirming that there's a legit sign-up. So uh, you brought up the example of an ID document. 
well, we have AI models to detect whether a document has been tampered with. That is something that some other players in the industry can offer as well. We also have AI models to uh, determine whether a document is authentic and why. Now, that is way more challenging. So it involves um, localizing and confirming the validity of security features. So every government-issued uh, issued, um, ID document has security features like holograms, ghost images, microprints, a lot of different things. And we've built models to, to make sure that we can detect those security features uh, which are only present on a genuine document and not, for example, on a high-quality um, photocopy. But if you look at it more holistically, uh, it then means we can match that ID document to a selfie, including liveness detection, so we can ensure that you are the same person as on that uh, genuine uh, ID document. But it do doesn't stop there. And maybe to give you an example, what we do on the whereabouts side, two years ago we had someone signing up with a uh, legit UK passport, probably bought on the black market. That person claimed to live in France. Her residential address was in France. The person was using a German mobile phone for the sign-up process, so with a plus 49 country code. But the geolocation at the time of sign-up was in Yekaterinburg in Russia. And uh, based on that sort of strange pattern, we decided to reject that person. And we could subsequently see that same person over the course of a week try 10 more times with uh, beards, glasses, moustaches, everything, trying to fool the system. So there's very different ways in, in which we can establish whether a sign-up is legit or not. That seems like a very obvious example of a fraudster trying to commit fraud, right? Is there examples that you have of where it's maybe less obvious? Yes, yeah, so I think that there are different things, and, and uh, we're in our offices right now. Uh, all of our meeting rooms are named after fraud cases that we've seen in the past. So there's also one where uh, there's called the couch, where someone had su successfully spoofed their geolocation, um, and I'm not going to disclose how we find out that he spoofed his geolocation, but he made one mistake, which is he signed up once claiming to, li to be in France and once claiming to be in Italy, but he signed up twice sitting on the same couch. So it's stuff like that. There can always be telltale signs. But maybe on the more sophisticated side, what we've seen uh, during the pandemic is, is an um, extreme rise in, um, in uh, fraud attempts and also in the level of sophistication. Um, for example, using deepfakes, but also using hyper-realistic silicon masks uh, like you may remember from Mission Impossible, yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> where, where people are actually going a long way to try and fool the systems. Has that deep fakes, because I think that's been around for, I'm going to say a year, but to be honest, I forgot the sense of time. It's been, it's been around for a little while, let's say. Has that been successful in many ways? Is it easy to see, okay, this is a deep fake, or is that really something you had to train your models on to make sure that they started to recognize that? So I think there's two things. One, the, the, the platform that we have, unfortunately, is never finished. So we um, want to sort of be very cautious to uh, assume that at a certain point in time our checks are so good that no one will ever be able to get through because this is a constant cat and mouse game between us and the fraudsters. So every single day we're adding new checks, uh, checking whether our existing checks are performing to the level we expect. So that's sort of the starting point. And I think with deep fakes, it's an example of a technology that's evolving very, very rapidly. So I think uh, what we saw during the pandemic is sort of this popping up in, in different countries across Europe without connection between the different cases. So it's really a new modus operandi that fraudsters are, are testing from different locations. And I think um, initial attempts were of very poor quality, where sort of it's very easy to spot that 
uh, it's a deep fake. At the same time, we realize, and this is something you uh, can also see if you follow the news, that that technology is becoming better very rapidly. So it's something we're very conscious of and where we want to make sure that we're always uh, ahead of the game by continuously investing in R&D of our platform. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the, the back to four of line, kind of the core of the success, it's happy customers, um, it's a high quality product. What about people? Yeah, I, I think you know, what I mentioned before is uh, the only reason we are successful is because we've got an absolutely amazing team. So 230, as mentioned, in offices in Amsterdam and Barcelona. Um, I think one of the, the, the great assets of this company is that we've got a very clear mission, which is leveraging technology for good, in this case, fighting financial crime. And we always ask people uh, upon joining what the key reason is for joining. And I th I'd say sort of eight out of 10 times it's that mission. So people want to be part of a company that has a positive impact on society on a daily basis. And whether you're working on the engineering side, the operations side, on the commercial side, uh, you contribute to that success um, and the success of the company, but also society at large, because ultimately um, this is a fight against one trillion US dollars that are being laundered on a, uh, an annual basis and how we can help uh, through technology fight that problem. Yeah, because in, in the, the reach is global, right? You talk about that one trillion, the, the reach of your product is global? So I think uh, from a um, ID document perspective, it's global. It's, mm -hmm. It always has been. I think if you look at it from a global perspective in terms of where the, the majority of our volume is, it's in Europe. And the reason for that is because the strictest regulations around privacy, GDPR, and the strictest regulations around AML converge in Europe. And we've said, listen, we want to build a global standard. And if you zoom out, I think there's a ton of interesting things happening in Asia. But their current privacy policy is not f fit for global rollout. There's a ton of interesting things happening in the US market, but their AML policies are way too loose for a global rollout. So we said, listen, if we can crack Europe, if we can perform uh, at scale, at high quality, in compliance with the strictest regulations in Europe, that means we've got a shot at becoming the global standard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very great strategy, I think. Um, if you look at uh, specifically uh, Europe, then you're a, you're a Dutch uh, regulated financial entity, right? Why is that? Why are you regulated by the DMB? Because to my knowledge, a KYC tool doesn't necessarily have to be regulated. I think it's a great question. I think uh, the reason we uh, became regulated is uh, through the genesis of the company. So starting with the deposit platform that uh, needed regulation. Um, and unfortunately, I cannot disclose too much, but we're uh, in, uh, in, in the process of executing a growth strategy where we referred to earlier on, where we're saying, okay, the, the, the core is a bank rate KYC solution, but then we're building products on top of that uh, that are built on specific needs of existing clients of ours, where we tackle challenges of um, identity throughout the life cycle of a client. So we've got a tool to, to check whether, okay, you may, may not be on sanction list on the day you sign up, but who knows what you're up to next week. That's our monitoring solution. Uh, we have a solution if you switch phones and you want to rebind your banking app. You can take a selfie, which we compare with the one we have on file. It allows you access to your banking app. We have a solution for VKYC, which is the mandatory requirement to re-screen clients every one to three years. We launched a qualified e-song signature solution that allows you to legally sign binding agreements on your smartphone. And um, in the coming months, we're also going to launch a, a pay product that tackle specific challenges around identity and payments. And, uh, and, and that is one of the reasons why 
uh, we're holding on uh, to our license as a payment institution. Comes in very handy, I guess. Absolutely, <laughs> and I think so. If it, it, I think if you zoom out, um, banks like the uh, fact that we work with fintechs because they know fintechs are obsessed about UX and conversion. Fintechs like the fact that we work with banks because they know uh, banks are obsessed about uh, compliance and security. And I think so that um, that combination works very well for us. And if you want to um, partner with a very large global financial institution, you need to pass what is called a vendor, vendor onboarding process. And it typically means you get an Excel with 400 questions that are very granular questions. And I think because of the fact that we're regulated ourselves, we understand that they have a need to uh, know our IT security policy, our data security policy, our disaster recovery, uh, recovery policy, and a whole bunch of other policies that, that we have in place because we're a regulated financial institution. And that makes it easier to sell into those very demanding global financial institutions. Hence the big names that you obviously have as clients already. So Absolutely. It yeah. certainly works. Um, so we talked uh, about a few of your milestones over those past, let's say, four years since the inception of the product. Is there other milestones, key learns um, along the way that we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, so I think it's fair to say, and I, I briefly touched upon it, but maybe sort of to highlight it again, I think um, our vision has been, okay, how can you build um, a, a product where you leverage a single data set across all of the checks that you need to perform on a client, both on day zero, as well as throughout the life cycle of a client. And um, in all fairness, I mean, anyone claiming to do anything with AI in KYC from day one, call their bluff. It's not possible. It's very hard work. It involves building up a ton of knowledge, uh, having the data to really um, understand what's happening in practice, building models, training models, validating the models, and then running, that at least has been our um, process, uh, running in parallel a check by a human operator and check by an algorithm. And only if we can statistically prove that an algorithm outperforms a human operator, so not the same quality level, but a higher quality level, then uh, would we automate a check. So if you look back over the past years, that means that sort of initially there were a lot of checks that, that uh, we believe the human operator was better at. And throughout sort of the past years, we've been consistently driving automation, consistently increasing the quality when automating. I think that has been uh, a very tough, but also an amazing journey, because it means you now have a product that can um, show at scale uh, that you can drive quality uh, at a lower cost and a way better UX for the client. Great. So it's, it, I love how you had basically companies saying to you, KYC and AI bluff, but you thought regardless we're going to try it out and you basically showed them wrong. No, I, let me correct that. I think a lot of competitors are claiming that they can apply AI to KYC on day one and that is not possible. So sort of we took the approach uh, don't say anything publicly, just build something that is absolutely awesome and then start asking credits for that. And so over those last four years, but let's say specifically this year, you talked a bit about kind of the trends you've seen, right, with these silicon ma masks, um, the deep fakes, uh, you talked about social engineering. Is there other trends that you've seen develop because of maybe COVID or other developments that are going on right now? Yes, yeah, so I think the, the longer term vision that we're executing is very much around how can we make sure that once you've gone through this process of a very rigorous KYC uh, process with the bank, mm -hmm. how can we make sure that you, as an end customer, are then empowered to uh, reuse that data across different use cases? 
It can be within one bank, it can be between different financial institutions, but it can also be across different verticals. And there's currently a big push uh, from the European Commission um, to make sure that uh, citizens across Europe get access to a digital wallet or an EID. Um, and we want to play a very active role in that. And that is something that's going to drive the market over the next two years. We've already been preparing that for that over the past years, and we want to play a very active role in, in that process going forward. So it's EID and the European Payment Initiative. No, so it, there's uh, a, a push from the European Commission, uh, particularly given sort of the drive they see from big tech to make sure that within Europe, citizens are empowered to have their own digital identity, which they can use across different use cases. And so far, that has been very much a country by country approach, where oftentimes a government issued uh, EIDs are pushed by national governments. Um, and that has worked in some countries not so well in other countries um, and we believe there is a, a real big opportunity to build a pan-European EID at the highest quality level and that's something we're very actively pursuing. Does that mean, I'm not sure if this is related maybe further on from that, that there is a future where really soon where I can finally just have my phone with me to prove my ID in case I get stopped on the street or need to show it? it that is absolutely what we're executing towards and I think um, oftentimes, the, the, the underlying problem and what we're trying to solve here is also to prevent you from oversharing information where it's not needed. Um, so uh, let's say you walk into the supermarket this afternoon. Uh, maybe uh, at the cash register they doubt whether you're above 18. Now, the typical situation right now is that you then show your government-issued uh, ID, which is ridiculous because that contains far more information then the supermarket needs to know. They only need to know whether you're above 18, not what your full legal name is, what your date of birth is, what your place of birth is, sometimes on, on international uh, ID documents, even what your address is. And I think the underlying goal here is to make sure that you only share information on a need-to-know basis. And we believe that is vital to being successful in, in sort of this digital era where uh, your identity and your uh, PII data should be protected at the very high security levels. Is that because developments that people are so conscious of their personal data and indeed they only want to share the minimum amount? So I think there's been a, a big push by governments in Europe to install GDPR. And I think people are now starting to realize that it's actually a really good thing if you look at it from a customer protection perspective. And if you zoom out and if you look at what's happening at, uh, on a global basis, GDPR is very quickly becoming an export product. So on an individual level, states in the US are implementing legislation that is very similar to GDPR. And I think that's an example of regulation actually being really good for the citizen. And then if you embrace regulation as a company, you can actually build products on top of it that empower a citizen within what is possible from a regulatory perspective. Right. That's clearly a lot of opportunity. What's next for you guys? Where are you? Is there something exciting you can share about where you're going next, something that's going to happen sooner? Where do you see, where do you want to take Forfline in the next couple of years? So I think, in all honesty, we haven't scratched the surface yet. So even if you look at sort of the core product with uh, the bank paid KYC solution and the growth potential we see uh, in, in the coming years, this is going to be an explosive growth market for the foreseeable future. And if you then think about the vision that we're executing with the different products on top of that, there's really only one thing that we're worried about, which is can we bring the right talent on board to execute on the potential we see in the market? And I think 
um, it's it's been said very often that sort of uh, for scale ups the, the the key question used to be what's your runway, and now the key question is what is your hiring strategy because there is a massive fight for talent ongoing and I think it's very important um, to bring the right people in to retain them to develop them and to make sure that they have a thriving career within your company and something we're uh, taking very seriously and, and it comes back to my earlier point where it can make a real difference if you have a compelling mission and you're actually leveraging te technology for good and I think that is a key way to differentiate yourself in a very competitive hiring market. Yeah, I guess everyone struggles with talent these days. There's, uh, there's more demand than there is supply, as they say. So is there to maybe a bit, of a bit of a sales pitch? Why is Fourthline such a great place to work? You're a CEO. Why do you say people have to work here at Fourthline? This is a great place. You have a mission which is very clear. Obviously, take care of your people. Is there something else that people should know? Yeah, so I think uh, in, in addition to that mission, which as, as mentioned before, is, is a key reason for people joining, I think it's also sort of the unlimited, unlimited personal growth opportunities you have within a scale-up. So if a, if a company is going 2x, 3x in terms of revenue year on year, it means that by definition, even if you sit still in the same position, your position is going to be twice as big or three times as big in a year to come. But it also means that in a scale-up, we reward people and we um, promote people based on the attitude shown, the results shown. It means that sort of if you are ambitious, if you want to build something for skill, if you want to be a part of a company that is um, pushing the boundaries both uh, literally from a, a country perspective but also metaphorically from a product perspective, then there's unlimited growth opportunities for those people within Fortline. Great. Well, thanks, Rick. Great to be on the show, to have you on the show, to be in your office, uh, to hear your views uh, on the on the markets, to hear more about Fourthline, the founding story. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, tune in again next week for another episode of InCheck with FinTech. Thank you for checking in with FinTech. If you enjoyed this week's episode, subscribe, like, and leave us a comment below. We'll be having more industry leaders next week. Tune in next week for more. Thanks for listening, and we'd like to leave you with a more serious message from our partner Free a Girl, who are dedicated to founding child prostitution and impunity all over the world. Hi, I'm Evelyn, CEO and founder of Free a Girl. Every day, two million children, especially girls, are being held captive worldwide. They are locked up and exploited in brothels, dance bars, or online, forced into sexual exploitation. Their freedom is taken away together with their youth, family and future. We are dedicated to fight sexual exploitation of children by rescuing these girls. Please join us, unlock their freedom and unlock your potential by becoming a business partner. Please visit freegirl.com for more information. Thank you.